and welcome to Etc. Etc. I'm your host, Aug Stone. I got my first shot of the vaccine a few days ago, and the day afterward, I was feeling a bit out of it and kept wondering if I had ever listened to that third Faster Pussycat album, Whipped, that came out in 1992. Spent quite a long time debating if I ever had. Finally just listened to it. And then, but before that, I started writing a new Young Southpaw story that addressed this record. And also some real-life confusion about an episode of Beverly Hills 90210 that I saw back in 1992. And then the story ended up addressing such ideas as, what if 90210 was originally conceived as like some sort of bizarre tribute to Fugazi? And what if at some point during the show's initial run, Brenda started dating Eddie, Iron Maiden's mascot? Now, I can't really tell if the vaccine was affecting me at all since, I mean, this is where my thoughts usually run to anyway. So here's a clip of that story. I remember back in 1992, you know, the year after the year punk broke. I was watching an episode of 90210. And like Brenda comes back from Paris and gives Dylan a charm for his watch chain. And it reads, Je t'aime, Brenda. And like I didn't speak French. Had no idea what that meant. But like because a watch tells time, and Tem kind of sounds like time. The two became equated in my mind. I mean, I love that Anthrax song, Got the Time, you know, tick, tick, tick into my head. All right, I know it's a Joe Jackson tune, but I didn't know the original back then. This was pre-internet days. I mean, long before you could be watching 90210 and just Google whatever questions you had about the band Anthrax. I did find it confusing, however, that she would be giving him something for his watch that had the word time on it. Like he might not know what said watch is for. I mean, I know Dylan didn't go to school all that much. I just remember him sitting up on the roof of his house. And people would say he'd be reading Nietzsche, but I I never saw it. And like the KLF had just released America, What Time Is Love? the year before, you know? So obviously the two words are equated somehow. And the decision to re-record their anthem, What Time Is Love, and stick the word America at the beginning, I mean, it points to them prophesying this whole 90210 episode. Brenda returning to the States after her summer in Paris. And like she said it as Tem. You know, right as the screen showed the engraved word, so I knew it was spelt T-A-I-M-E. 
But Brenda pronounced it completely differently than Tame It Down, your lead singer of Faster Pussycat. I mean, bizarrely, checking the dates now, when I can Google things, that third Faster Pussycat album, Whipped, came out August 4th, 1992. And that 90210 episode was shown a mere 15 days later. So something was definitely in the air. And I mean, there's that song on the third Faster Pussycat record, you know, She Just Loves Me for My Big Dictionary. Dictionary? Aaron and Tori spelling, you know? I dug those first two Faster Pussycat records. I mean, Shooting You Down. Oh, man, I just noticed Tame's last name is in there. I noticed it for the first time. Woo! I mean, it's like he's singing it, you know, shooting you, comma, down, like he's addressing himself. Whoa! I mean, see what happens when you hang in there for over 30 years? Your eyes are completely open. But, like, I mean, Poison Ivy and House of Pain were played quite a bit on MTV. This was pre-the band House of Pain and post the Van Halen song off 1984, of course. And like Poison Ivy, I'm not implying that that third Faster Pussycat album sounds like what would happen if the Cramps and Van Halen merged into a supergroup. Van, Cramp, Vamps, Halen. What I'm trying to say is I remember later there was like this 90210 retrospective and Luke Perry was talking about a scene he had to do with Shannon Doherty. You know, before she went on to form the Libertines. And they weren't getting along, but they they had to be sitting in a car together and she was holding a cat the entire time before the cameras rolled. I mean, talk about coincidence. The strange thing about this is, I mean, 90210 is not a time. There are not 210 minutes in the 9 o'clock hour, a.m. or p.m., or any hour, come to think of it. I mean, 3 a.m. may be eternal, but that's a lot longer than 210 minutes. If you want to hear more of that, and believe me, there's more. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the Iron Maiden stuff yet. You can find it at the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast. Available at all the podcast places and at youngsouthpaw.com. There's now 58 stories up, so in your face, Heinz. By the time you hear this episode, I will have turned 45, which I was having a lot of trouble with a few weeks back, actually. I mean, it's such a big musical number. It's a bummer I won't get to host a party playing my favorite 7-inch singles on my actual B-Day this year. But then I decided to get through all the existential angst by just watching a bunch of Parker Posey movies, which was totally the right call. I'd recommend it to anyone. Watch Dazed and Confused again, which was great. And then I read Melissa Meritz's book on it that came out last year, Excellent Stuff. I was pleasantly surprised by the movie Spring Breakdown with Parker Posey, Amy Poehler, and Rachel Dratch. And Rachel Dratch delivers one of my all-time favorite movie jokes in it. I was laughing so hard I had to keep pausing the film. 
And I've got Josie and the Pussycats lined up for my actual birthday. So let's get to today's episode. We got Mr. Andrew Shaw, the Silent Academy, coming back on. This is his second appearance on the show. Always great to talk to him. He's got his third book of couplets coming out on May 3rd, entitled Coordinates. So let's get to it. All right. We're here today with Mr. Andrew Shaw. How you doing, man? I'm okay, thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for coming on. It occurred to me yesterday as I was writing questions, we've never actually met in person. Like I've known you for years and feel I know you pretty well, but we've never been in the same room together. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> and I also have a relationship with another friend that I've never met. That I also feel like I know quite intimately. But I had a discussion where I was thinking that maybe that makes it easier for me because... I'm not good around people. <laughs> no, I don't know. Yeah, but that's true. Yeah. Yeah, we've been for like four years, I think. Well, longer because we know each other because of pop bollocks. And that was started out of an impulse to do something creative when I heard that. Uh, Mr. Trump was going to be the president. Oh. Yeah, so that's, I measure <laughs> our relationship as you're the counter-Trump. <laughs> <Very good. laughs> so there's a responsibility for you. <laughs> there's some big pants to fill. <laughs> so to kick things off, Young Southpaw sent me in a question for you. Okay. About yeah. your your new book, Coordinates. Mm -hmm. It's the third of a trilogy, right? It is. Where are the Ewoks? <sighs> the Ewoks. You don't understand. That's a really that's a bizarre question. Talk about synchronicities because um you know I have a fondness for making up bands that don't exist. One of them, one of the bands that I made up that don't exist was called Ewok Geisha. Ooh. And I wanted Ewok Geisha to make a like a, an ambient album, <laughs> like a, a drone album, <laughs> um, to play in the background of the book launch for the trilogy so the Ewoks are actually there is the answer oh. <laughs> amazing yeah. yeah and actually um I once talked about Ewok Geisha with um you know the director uh Richard Elfman yes and he agreed to play congas on that for me An ambient conga album <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so now I've been thinking about Ewok Geisha for a while because that was that was a decade ago. I had that conversation with him. So I think you should make this happen. You know, like uh, you know, the Bad Wisdom soundtrack from Bill Drummond, Mark Manning's book. How they yeah had the various bands Ewok Geisha. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to have Kongs on it, but I do think that Ewok Geisha is a great name for a. It's got to be a trio. The band is a trio, right? Um, and so they would be really great that would be an ideal band to 
um, make an ambient drone album that would be played beneath a reading of the trilogy. That was the um, that was the concept. So the Ewoks are there, or uh, Mr. Southpaw. <laughs> you can tell him. I'll let him know. <laughs> so you envision these three books as a trilogy. Yeah. Tell me about that. Like you had that idea from the beginning. Yeah, I'm really fond of um, triads and triptychs and things that come in three. And see about Geisha being a trio. Yeah, um, I, I, I think it's a really tricky number and I like it. And I also, um, it's funny, I was listening to a different podcast the other day where they talk about the hero's journey and the three acts. Hmm. And so you can buy any of the books individually and I address you know, sloppily and vaguely uh, mind, body, and soul. And so the idea was that I would do that and I and if I enjoyed doing them. So I didn't announce that there was a trilogy coming because I thought if this sucks and I hate it, I'm not going to commit myself to a process that I just uh, is miserable to complete. And people will always be like, oh, you know, I kind of did like the idea of having a trilogy that, wouldn't be finished um that was quite tempting but anyway so i didn't uh, i didn't let anybody know there was a trilogy coming a couple of people knew that it was a trilogy um but with it i liked the idea that you would travel from not necessarily in that order but start with imagination go through you know heart soul or whatever and then be back in the body and so coordinates was about the imagination and the heart and the not knowing being placed in the material and still not knowing, but that was the dynamic. So the, the uh, what do they call it? The hero's arc was through those three books. Um, I mean, it's very, you got to look for it. <laughs> it's, it's very misty, but that was the structure that I played with. And then I kind of kicked down and, um, and used as a guide rather than a rule. I think Nabokov said that about Ulysses, that uh, Joyce used that idea just as a bridge to make yeah. the book. But once he was over, he burned it down. Well, that, yeah. I mean, everything that I've done, which I'm um, pleased with the results of, has been uh, the response to something incredibly structured, which then allows for freedom within the structure so you can forget the structure almost exists. So there was, um, do you know uh, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters when they were playing around with LSD on the bus? And um, there was an experiment that they did where they gave the Grateful Dead were there and Neil Cassidy was there and, you know, all these well-known counterculture figures um, enormously free and easy and uh, dressed as they were dressed. And somebody said, well, you, when you come on board, you've got to wear these berets. And so somebody had the idea of informing the evening by bringing on a dress code, which is everybody had to wear a beret. And so all these hippies, these like famous free thinking people were like, well, I'm going to wear a fucking beret. Like, you're not going to tell me what to wear, man. I'm wavy gravy or you know whatever and um they realized actually that they put the they put the berets on 
and realized that actually by wearing the berets, their character came out more. And so being restricted in some sense and also associated with everybody else just visually by this prop, this hat, that their personality, you know, some people wore it this way, some people wore it that way, mm -hmm. and they all modify the beret. But with that, they also made the person beneath the beret be more of themselves. Um, so I kind of, yeah, I mean, you know, in art or um, creation and stuff, it's the, the noodling that goes on around the structure. Okay. Yeah, I really like that. And, you know, David Lynch going every day to the uh, the diner to at the same time for 10 years, he went and drank the same milkshake every day. So within that discipline, his mind was free to go because that was so secure. The structure of his daily routine was so secure that his mind could go wherever it wanted. Um, so yeah, that's why I <laughs> like, can. like early can did that a lot as well. They would set limitations mm -hmm. and, you know, made the most wonderful music with yeah that. <laughs> yeah there's a musicality to it i mean you know if you think about all the freedom in a 12 bar blue structure um if you think of i mean people have talked about the books being you know feeling like haiku or you know haiku are incredibly strict mm. but when they're done you well you aren't aware of the structure or the codes within there um so yeah, it's a thing that re it really allows for minimalism to take over because it's just like, well, here's a switch, <laughs> here's a here's a white thing of certain proportions. What can we? Um, how can we bounce light off it? Yeah. What are some of your favorite trilogies? Oh well, oh man, favorite trilogies. <laughs> Well, we can come back to it if you, uh, if you No, want. I was going to make a joke about I'm waiting for the third book of the Bible would be interesting. Um, Star Wars is a great trilogy. I know that's kind of unhip to say, but I, no, I, I find the Star Wars, I'm going to, you know, the, the original Star yeah. Wars trilogy is, um, uh, you know, apart from the terrible stitching on the Ewoks. <laughs> it is a wonderful... Uh, yeah, I love that. I love that series of films. Um, now, you you wrote all these when you were still living in the states, right? Right. I was wondering if, like Bowie's Berlin albums, do you think of this as like your Washington trilogy? <sighs> Not until you mentioned it. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. So. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, yes and no, then, because the notes from coordinates were from processing things from other places. Well, I mean, like Lodger, I don't think it was recorded in Berlin at all. I think that was no. in New York. So, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there is a distinctly rainy feel to some of it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the covers are grey. <laughs> um, but um, I mentioned I mentioned Washington State in there, I think, in the blurb, because I did enjoy Washington State. 
And where I lived, it didn't necessarily feel particularly like the rest of America. It, it did have a very distinct and separate identity, that region. Um, that, you know, people that were there when I would say, well, it doesn't really feel like, uh, you know, mainland America. They would say, well, this is what real America feels like. And the big competition for real America. Um, but no, I don't know. I'll, I'll agree with you for now, but it wasn't anything that was consciously, right. I'm going to distill the atmosphere of Washington in these. In the intro, you say, we are interested in our relationship with the impermanent. We aim to disrupt habitual thinking. Can you give me an example from your life of when you did disrupt your own habitual thinking? I can give a very pedestrian answer. This is, it's really important to do this for me. And, and um, because it, the, the alchemy of everything in a moment. And I talked about this with a friend recently where um, this is the most mundane example I'll give you, like in a, in a Zen way of like the most mundane thing will explain everything. Ah. <laughs> I could go really, you know, talk about, some far-reaching literary thing that will this may turn people off as well but i found some dried bread in the cupboard and i was kind of pissed off that the bread had dried out and was wasted so i thought well i can make breadcrumbs and so then i made breadcrumbs and i put the breadcrumbs onto a meal that were enhanced by what half an hour before had been something that had annoyed me. Mm. And so that's like the most mundane thing I can think of. But if you pause, I like to try and pause of, well, what's the, the, the response to, well, this bread's rubbish. I'm an idiot. I let that dry out. I've wasted money and food and the whole situation's now bullshit. If you... If I, I tend to think, if, even if the, those small disruptions can alter something and then the alchemy happens and then, you know, I mean, I love breadcrumbs on stuff, right? So it elevated this meal beyond measure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, other things are um, creatively letting things breathe and then um not being too afraid of embarrassment um and also you know because if we we if you're doing anything creative and then you're sharing it in public there's an indulgence it's such an ego trip to i'm doing something of value and i'm going to share it with you and so there's the self-inflating thing that goes with that but um I really genuinely think that I'm not responsible for anything that comes out of me. Um, so I let it come out of me and it exists as an artifact in some form. And then I'll look at it and then I make it the best version of itself that I can make. And that's the editing and the, or the reworking or the shifting of a position in something. Um, and so that's where I think I can disrupt something um, and then make it kind of less familiar so it becomes 
it will find the magic angle, if that makes sense. So that, you know, whether it's breadcrumbs or um, playing with paint or whatever it is I'm mucking around with. I was wondering, knowing that you're not really much of a fan, would the simple act of listening to Van Halen be a disruptor for you? I love listening to Van Halen. What are you talking about? Even better. (laughs) Have we not discussed Panama? Oh, we might have, but remind me. Yeah. The Panama is one of the greatest pumped up songs. No argument here. No, no. So, no, yeah, I would. But no, this is true. Um, Like, okay, so here's one bananas. I'm going to go with another food. I hated bananas for years, couldn't eat a banana. And I hated the fact that I hated bananas. So every month or two, I would try and eat a banana. And now I love bananas. And I've probably eaten more bananas than any other food because I dislike them. <laughs> so it's just to keep making sure that your tastes are open. Um, so, yeah, I'll do that with, um, you know, I'll do that with music or books or anything. It's like, okay, now I get it because we, I mean, this is part of what I try and talk about in the clumsy way in coordinates, which is, that we are just memories of memories of memories and habits on habits on habits. So if I wake up every day and I convince myself that I'm somebody that doesn't like this piece of art or uh, this ideology or, you know, anything, then actually I'm not thinking anything and I'm the thing that I'm saying I hate. Um, And we all do do that. You know, well, I'm a guy that I'm not going to, you know, we started off making jokes about Trump. What happens if one day somebody of Trump's character does something unspeakably good. And we've, I mean, this is a big ask of a lot of people, but just keep listening for a minute because something, I don't think it will, but something may turn a corner and suddenly we've got a chink of light and, and then you can find the, find the connection, you know? So that's the thing as well, you know, like, drop the assumptions you know eat bananas make breadcrumbs listen to panama by van halen (laughs) i know what i'm saying (laughs) that sounds ideal (laughs) i mean if they were gluten-free breadcrumbs for me but you know well yeah it's all possible it is all possible i was going to ask you about that in your intro talking about memory do you have any memories that you're not sure are real like you've told yourself a version of events enough times that and then come up against some sort of evidence that that isn't exactly what happened almost all of almost everything i think i i i am uncertain of and i'm not being flippant i i am i am honestly unsure of almost anything and um this is true actually okay so going back to um the books being flavored by washington dc and uh, washington state sorry and is it flavored when i was living there i kept having this idea that i wasn't actually alive and that i was um if you're familiar with the uh tibetan book of the dead where the consciousness as it leaves the material body it travels through these different realms of uh awareness called and they're all individual bardos and uh, William Burroughs had an idea where he wrote that actually you're already in a bardo. Your consciousness 
is just convinced this the material plane that we are currently sharing is just as much a dream as the next layer of consciousness that we'll travel through. And when I was in uh, this area of Washington, there was so much misty, figurative and literal uh, events unfolding, so many of these things, and the world was so unusual that I thought, well, what purchase do I have in it? Um, it was a very difficult realm um, to, uh, you know, the Chinese call it the, the hungry ghosts, you know, the, oh, yeah. the, the, it, it was a really um, unusual headspace to be in. And I really genuinely, it sounds really glib, um, but I'm dead serious. I, I really don't know what I'm convinced of. And so I, every day I do try and be open to, well, you know, I cling on to certain things. I really do. You know, like there are some things of value that um, my ego is really grasping to and I'll, you know, have an argument with something or, you know, usually pretending that I care about this thing that I don't really care about. Um, but, yeah, no, I really, there are so many things. I could give you an example of a more mundane thing where I was convinced I saw a book that I travelled from England to America with, and I'd seen it on a bed and I'd discussed with other people that I'd lost this book, and then it actually arrived six months later in a box. But I have uh, I have constructed all these memories around a, it was a picture book, um, being on a mattress, and I could have, I would have, I would have passed a uh, lie detector test telling you that I knew exactly where that book was. But when I've had a couple of those experiences, you know, and my opinions are wrong all the time. I was correcting Americans on how to say David Bowie <laughs> until somebody played me David Bowie saying, you pronounce my name, David Bowie. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> so, that was a big YouTube clip. <laughs> I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the greats. <laughs> so that's my point. You know, what do I know? I don't know. Um, so I kind of, and that's annoying for a lot of people, you know, when people have said, ask me opinions on stuff and I make a living sharing opinions about things. Um, I don't really know if these are my opinions. They're just things that are falling out of me, um, mm -hmm. coming through me. I'm not sure that even answers your question. <laughs> no, no, it does. <laughs> I Actually, I was trying to think of examples of my own life to give you because I know there have been, mm -hmm. but it was weird. I I still haven't been able to think of any because I think the stories I like to tell myself that are aesthetically pleasing to me when they've encountered factual evidence that doesn't agree with it, instead of morphing the story into something more true, quote unquote true, I've just abandoned it rather than have it be less aesthetically pleasing to me. I mean, I'd have to like search in my journals for examples of where this came along and if it actually happened, but I was surprised I couldn't actually think of any examples right off the bat. Well, years ago, I mean, it, the adverse is true as well, because I mean, you know, we think that we, this is, I mean, this is in relation to the book where I'm talking about memory and how they, the exercises that we perform to uh, remind ourselves of things. And um, there is the narrative that, you know, that most people, I think, and I know I do it, where we, we do paint ourselves as like the victim or the nice guy or the, I was wronged in this instance, but then, you know, years ago when Facebook was, I, you know, I dabble, I, I did dabble with Facebook 
<laughs> he did. I was there. We were, we were young. <laughs> we all did it. <laughs> it was an experimental phase. But um, there was a girl that I was at school with. And, you know, I was a messenger. And, you know, I said, oh, you know, I always think that when I kind of reestablish communication with somebody, when I was at my drinking best or whatever, I should apologize for being such a drunken asshole. And she said, no, you were always lovely. <laughs> because in my head, I'd associated the, the drinking, smoking bleh, me with this awkward kind of mass of elbows and awkwardness and kind of, you know, um, terrible behavior. But she had in her head an entirely different version of me. Um, so that's true as well. Uh, you know somewhere in all of that mess there'll be the real case but i don't know if the in in that sense you know um in those ways of perceiving you know inconsequential things does it actually really matter um i think tom Waits said something about you know the romantic truth is of a higher value than a cold fact you know mm. Um, this isn't going back to Trump stuff, but, um, <laughs> you know, creatively speaking. Um, yeah. And I, I am always surprised when someone, you find out someone thinks you're less of an asshole than you think you are. I am. It doesn't happen to me very often. <laughs> They're usually in agreement. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you, you, um, it is amazing when other people have ideas of you i have i can't tell you who i won't name them but somebody i know traveled from um america to australia to live with a guy and as she arrived at the airport he wasn't there and he completely forgot about her and this was before the internet and mobile phones and stuff oh. and she phoned around and found out that um he was watching a game of rugby like any good australian guy and completely forgot about this girl he professed love to so she was waiting at the airport for a ride that never came eventually a um friend of his turned up with a van and took to meet him in a pub where he roundly ignored her and she sat in the pub after a however long the flight is between 20 hours i think yeah so she was sat there and i was just i was just so tickled by this because i was like the rest of the people in that pub all they know about there was this very angry girl and that's the, that's what she will be forever and we we all do that right we're all one thing to so many people mm. um and often to ourselves so um those are the things i, I, I sound like i'm but those are the things that I was interested in playing around with in the book is that, well, what was the idea that you had of your memory when you were in it, what it was unhappening, and then how do you look at it now, and where's the truth in there? Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really interesting space to let your mind flip around in. Yes, but I'm dying to know what happened with, with the guy and the girl. Oh, well, they, you know, they split up. <laughs> <laughs>
did she stay in Australia for any like not for very long? Oh no. man, yeah, it's a long flight. It is a long flight. How did you get interested in Eastern thought? Do you know? I don't really remember. I remember um, when I, I was growing up in Nottingham, and there was one of the libraries would sell books off. At the end of every year, there was the library book sale, and there was a photo essay. Uh, there was a book that was like a photo essay of um, it was called the Zen Life, and I forget who the photographer was, but it was photographs of all the different aspects of. Uh, Rinzai Zen monastic life and uh, black and white photographs and um, really beautiful and those guys they just like like fucking rock stars to me they were I don't know how old I was I think I was like 12 or 13 and these guys were just like locked in something that was so aesthetically rich and simple but like crazy to me and um from there i think i started reading and then um my dad when i was much younger taught me tai chi and so there was discussions of the Tao and you know the flow of things and um but in that book um there was a photograph that was in japanese carved into a um a wooden board and it said uh it is forbidden to leave your sandals in disarray <laughs> and i just thought that was the most beautiful sign i'd ever read <laughs> so um that made sense i don't know why but it seemed so poetic um but also i think uh, you know the more you dig into it, all that stuff the more it gives and um, I mean, you can say that about anything, but it it actually tolerates inquiry, and it does it provides some answers to the inquiry, but then it it kind of engages in a way that makes you want to learn more. Um, you know, uh, if you compare. Not that I'm going to do that well, but if you can compare, you know, Christianity to Buddhism and Christianity seems, or s Christian scholars tend to be hung upon uh, validating this as an authentic thing that happened. And this man said this and we've got evidence and everybody argues whether they did or they didn't. And a lot of uh, the Eastern uh, religions like Buddhism, for example, where they talk, they're like, well, does it matter? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. The truth of the story is true. Truth is what is useful. I yeah. That quote. Yeah. Um, you know, and, um, you know, Luke Skywalker had some great points. And, <laughs> you know, if, if it resonates, then so you don't need to necessarily um, have an answer, although you can carry it. And so I, you know, I, I can't remember when I got into it, but I know why I keep going back to it because it's um, it's a really rewarding way of, for me, engaging with, especially you know, um, creative pursuits. It keeps you the brain nimble. Um, That's something though. I, I often think of how much do you think 
Star Wars had an influence on your spiritual ideas? How much does on mine or just on ones? Uh, I guess both. Well, probably a fair deal because I don't know. Did you ever see Monkey? No, but you're not the first person who is. Okay, so there was, it was a Japanese. It was a Japanese show made in the late '70s about a classic Chinese text, Journey to the West, and it's this episodic adventure where the monkey god, the fish god, and the pig god are accompanying a Buddhist monk who is carrying scrolls to the west, and every chapter they have an adventure they're met with by adversaries and blah 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 and this thing was serialized on i think it was on bbc2 about six o'clock when i was growing up from the age of five or whatever and um so there would be some kung fu some terrible men in costume it was kind of like kung fu doctor who right <laughs> so it was terrible costumes great stories awful acting dubbed into english and it was Japanese people pretending to be Chinese people, pretending to be animal gods. And, you know, every now and again, it would say, well, Buddha says. <laughs> so there'd be an adventure and then there'd be like a, a teaching from Buddhism thrown in on top. And then, you know, and then I was like, oh my, I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, oh my God, did, is that what turned me on to it at the age of five? Like watching these ridiculous, like pantomime escapades of a monkey who, road on a cloud um so i don't know i don't think star wars has done much for me spiritually um but maybe it has i wondered like i was i mean i still am interested in kabbalah but i studied it for quite a while but the idea that there is a force that permeates everything that can either be used for good or evil i was like oh this sounds familiar and like i just like wondered that has always been with me sort of but, you know i mean yeah but that's in so many um but here's the thing: if there's a worldview, it's going to come out in, yeah, in something creative. It's going to come out in people that reflect these things because that it's such an intriguing idea. And whether or not it's true, and that's kind of what I'm saying: it doesn't have to be true. But if you entertain it for a moment, where this thing is a possibility, it does lend some confidence to the endeavor, right? So, well, I'm going to pretend. You know, I mean, I just said it, you know, I don't think I write these things. This thing is just a thing that the book is a thing that happens when I sit. If I can discipline myself to put up with the misery of writing and get it out of my system, it's not coming from me. I don't know where it comes from. That's what I believe. But am I saying it's a force or is it a thing that I am part of? You know, who is observing the egolessness of that is the question um but yeah there are lots of i can't think of any because we're talking about it but i mean it's not the uh well you know the last airbender they talk about moving elements and enhancing the force of the thing and they you know which is um is it the five elements of tai chi where you have or qigong where you have the different, you know, the metallic elements, the fire elements, the earth elements. Yeah. You know. Um, so these aren't new ideas, but of course they're going to infect. Oh, no. What I'm saying is I wonder if, like, I am prone to these ideas because I thought lifesavers were really cool when I was five years old. <laughs> like, if it was just that sort of, you know, again, aesthetic intrigue that sort of 
roped me into it. But yeah, who hasn't thought that they were telepathic for a bit? You know, I defy anybody to tell me that they've not, as a kid, tried to move something with their mind, whether it's an X-Wing fighter or whatever it is. Like, I'm sure people have, you know, even if it's the, I'll try and get, you know, if the third one of these rolled up balls of paper goes in the bin, this will happen. Like we all, we've all done that. Anybody that says they've not done that is selling you something. I'm convinced of that. I wasn't expecting us to talk about Star Wars this much this episode, but... No, should we talk? Maybe we should start a Star Wars, like vaguely informed Star Wars enthusiasts. <laughs> <laughs> Discuss it at length. <laughs> yeah, I haven't got a clue what I'm talking about, but yeah, oh, that doesn't stop me. I want to ask you about um, Alex Ebert, who wrote the introduction. Yeah. Tell me about him and how you how he came to write it. So Alex Ebert, some people will know as. Um, an activist who gets down and dirty helping people that maybe don't have the glamorous issues um, being discussed. So he works with people in his own neighborhood that need help. And um, he is really, uh, he's worked a lot with um, helping people find financial and political purpose when they are overlooked and some people will know him because he was the lead singer of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros and um, the reason why I thought he was um, a nice candidate to write the introduction for a book which deals with memory and perceptions of who we are and how we pull our how we triangulate ourselves off these things is exactly that that um, some people will view him one way and uh, some people will view him another way because they've got opinions about his music or they've got opinions about his political ideology. Or, and so he's, it's not that he contradicts himself ever, but he is many things. He wears many hats and he's as an authentic of person as you can be whilst having that range of concerns. And so um I'd really enjoyed a lot of his work and I am always interested in what it is that he is doing as an activist because he will teach you something that you didn't know that was happening. Um, So he was involved in a thing called the voice project where he became the voice for a political prisoner who was incarcerated just because he was an artist. So Alex Ebert then took on his message from his luxury of being free to be able to speak about those things um and it was kind of like an amnesty international thing it wasn't amnesty international it's called a voice it's a great organization that um so you know he was doing this work and um then he started a project called bad guru where he takes the eastern teachings that we've just been addressing and he dismantles them in a way that shows how they hinder progress when they are um, kind of usurped to serve the function of the individual or just to sell a tea towel or a t-shirt or you know so um, you know you you are free to choose your own destiny at any point in time you you know all this self-empowerment nonsense that doesn't float you know you are choosing your own your own fate and so he would 
as bad guru, he would take a photograph of um, people working under modern slavery conditions, children in Africa who were being forced to mine for the minerals that go in your iPhone. And then he would take a quote from Oprah Winfrey that is, you know, you choose your own destiny and all this trite rehashing of the Eastern teachings. And he would put them together in these juxtaposed positions. And uh, I just thought that was amazing. Um, I just thought, yeah, you know, it's sickening when you hear people, well, that's just karma, you know, and know that, that you by saying resigning yourself to well, that's just karma shows such a lack of inquiry and just a resignation to things that removes your own personal responsibility to for the betterment of things around you um and so he was working on a project with that and it just i just thought wow this is you know he has a he has an audience where he can affect immediate change in a way that i find uh genuinely remarkable you know to uh, and and he has an energy for it he continues to give and you know other than you know he's making music he's doing this he's doing this and it's this tireless thing that he keeps doing like a child he wakes up and does it every day um and i mean like a child in the best way no yeah go um so when i was thinking about who 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 would disrupt the usual thinking of who writes forwards in books and um it was somebody that i thought had lots of people's contrasting perceptions of him writing about his belief about what um the interconnected of all things all things were so i just said alex (laughs) his tone at points um like for i can tell you from my vantage at least you are brave most avoid invitations to the void Really reminded me of the narrator of Camus' The Fall, Jean-Baptiste Camus. Right. Have you read that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that book. And I, I enjoyed yeah. the intro because of the, yeah. And besides from what he was saying, that sort of... Uh, yeah. Well, it's true because, I mean, I think if you, if you inquire anything of yourself properly rather than you seeking to reassure yourself that you are the nice guy and, you know, you were never a pile of elbows and drunken bad behavior... Um, you can learn unpleasant things about yourself and you have to earn those, uh, earn the, own those things. And so I think that's what he's referencing is, you know, like if you, if you know when I'm, I call it coordinates cause I'm triangulating, there's another triad thing, but you know, you, you look to points of reference to see where you are in the scene. And um, sometimes you've got just bleak points of reference and you are sometimes a bleak point of reference. Um, so yeah, it's it's it, it was the it doesn't sound like much, but you know it was the hardest book to write because it was like oh yeah no, you you know I am capable of being a phenomenal prick, um, and have done some phenomenal prickish things, and so you can make that as poetic as you want, but you also have to own it first before you can challenge it and then either apologize or retract the damage that you've done. Um, I think that's what Alex is talking about. You know, I want an iPhone, but I know that there are people making it under horrible conditions kind of thing. Yeah. You know, my freedom is the subjugation of somebody else. 
we should go back to Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about a few of the couplets. Um, okay. Beneath a bench in Sharp, uh, ants find a bag of stolen apricots, and a librarian in Paris dances with goats in the underground garden. France really seems like the place to be in these. <laughs> I got really vivid memories of France. I um I traveled around France a bit and I visited a few times. But yeah, those things, both of those things actually happened. Oh. Um, some of the things are similes or like uh, just exercises to help codes to help with memory. But um, in one of the uh, libraries in Paris, there's an underground garden and they graze goats there. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And this is what I mean. You don't have to go far looking for the surreal or the absurd because that happened. So there was a librarian being jostled by the goats. And I was like, you know, this is just beautiful. What a beautiful scene. And I always thought I was going to marry a librarian. So I was like, well, <laughs> How are they going to handle the goats, man? Um, but yeah, an underground garden in a library that had goats grazing in it. So you know, that's oh, you, you know, you're making this shit up, and it's like, no, it, it happens. And the um, I'm lying about the apricots. The apricots were stolen in India. And there were raspberries in the cathedral. Well. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that was that was a point where I mashed up two memories. Where, um, And I didn't steal the apricots in India. A, a donkey stole apricots. But for so, artistic purposes, it doesn't really matter. No, no, no. But that was the kind of point that where you've got two memories that overlap, where this soft fruit is being stolen by ants, but they're also stolen anyway so where's the crime ending and you know are ants actually if something's stolen can ants really then who who owns the apricots and in a cathedral you know stealing right right yeah stylistically are you a fan of nietzsche somebody else has asked me that because i i love his his brevity and he even said about his own brevity that, you know, he can say in well, like 10 sentences what someone else takes it to someone else, you know, 10,000 words to say. I forget what the exact quote is, but you've, you've seemed to reduce, you know, a very surreal poetic scene into a, a lovely little couplet. Well, I'll take that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, anybody that knows me, I, I'll either be not talking very much at all or talking all the time. <laughs> and so when I'm writing, I've learned that I'm better the less that I say. I was talking with somebody recently and I'm really, I because I'm talking about him again now, there was a, he was a French engineer whose name I can't remember, but he was, I think we talked about him before where the secret to a good design is wait, there's nothing left to take anything out. Mm. And I really think that, you know, if you want to get the essence and that's what I'm interested in, like everything else seems decoration. I was getting quite grumpy about this today, Org, where I was thinking about how much art is just decoration 
and it's actually quite tedious. And I was, you know, somebody else was talking about um, books and the hurry to publish books. And I just thought, well, why, you know, do they deserve to exist? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure mine deserve to exist, but the process of me doing it is what deserves to exist. Hmm. Um, the book itself is just nonsense. You know, it's a thing. It's flotsam to the experience of having the thrill of channeling and whatever. Um, but the Nietzschean thing where you can so crisply nail something, I'm not sure that I'm as successful as him stylistically, but you know, what a target. Yeah. That's um, to say something really quickly and which I'm counter doing now. Before I came on this, I said to a friend, I'm, I'm going to be on a podcast and I'm going to be talking about things that I've written about because I can't talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I'm doing. I'm talking too much. A dentist in Hong Kong sets fire to the rain. I love that. I, I don't I have a question about that one. I just thought this is a dude I would like to meet. <laughs> Do you, well, I'm not going to explain it then. Okay. Yeah. But it happened in Hong Kong. Three anarchists sit on a bench waiting for the acid to kick in. I feel like lots of songs have been written this way or angling toward that feeling. Yeah, well, I like the idea of um, that happened. And I like the idea that the, that the they could have been three anarchists waiting for the acid to kick in, but once it has kicked in, do they remain anarchists? Um, what happens next kind of thing? Um, it was a scene that was really interesting because, you know, um, Jarvis Cocker once said, nobody ever gets nicer when they're on drugs. <laughs> you, know, you don't. Um, oh, that guy, you know, he's really, he really comes into his own. He's such a charmer when he's on cocaine. He's, he really mellows out. <laughs> and so, you know, three anarchists on a bench waiting for the acid to kick in is um, things are about to kick in. And, you know, acid more than most things really does let people question whether they are the the label and the free thinking thing that they thought they were or do they suddenly start craving you know structure and regularity and something that preserves their sense of anarchy while they're tripping um because without the safety net most people do not want to be anarchists <laughs> so yeah um that's what that was about I noticed at toward the very end, there's a bunch of alls coming up. There's all the animals, all the cellos, everyone whispered, all the secrets. Did you group them together purposely that way? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you want them explaining or do you want to just sit there with them? Because I was, just, it was, um, I was wondering because I don't think, the, I think it goes those, and then there's another one afterward that isn't so inclusively you know all, yeah. all everything now the sequence is careful because um i was trying to distill things down towards the end where 
because it was the end of the trilogy and it was winding up. Ewoks. So I, metaphorical yeah. Ewoks. Yeah, the metaphorical <laughs> Ewoks. We're getting ready to burn Darth Vader. And um, no, I like the, the, the point was that um, actually some years ago, I edited a collection of poems for a poet who was, um, she didn't know what she was doing with sequencing. She was confused as to um, how to assemble this book. And I was reading with them. And that was the big puzzle. The poems didn't need editing at all. But the sequencing was the problem. And then as I sat with them, and this took a really long, like months, um, took a really long time. And then I realized there was a cast of characters that kept recurring. And she was unaware of it, but I realized in the chronology of this thing, they all came together and were unified at the end. And uh, I was like, oh, I'm going to steal that idea one day. <laughs> she hadn't. So I applied it to the sequencing. It was my idea, but it was her poems. And then, um, so I thought, well, I'm going to do that again, because I really like that as a device where there's these, uh, so there are three books and in coordinates, which happens when things are triangulated, there are three segments within coordinates. And so it's interesting that you spot it, but um, yeah, it breaks off at the end because that signals a new direction, but um, it's the gathering together and the condensing of elements that have been discussed in other places throughout the sequence are distilled into those cellos, animals, and everyone in the city. Um, so again, those three things represent other elements that come across in the first two books. And it's my vague attempt at making it feel complete that there is a unification where all these points of references actually come together as one unified, cohesive whole. So thank you for noticing that. I feel seen. <laughs> Please with myself. <laughs> so what's coming up next? What are you working on now? I am working might on be two different questions. There are two different questions. What's next? For the Science Academy, there's a couple of, uh, there's a writer who is a, beautifully spare writer who we are going to put out handwritten, not handwritten, handmade books. Um, they're going to be typewritten and put out uh, in a limited edition of just 21 copies, which are frankly, um, if you ever read a book where you're like jealous that you didn't produce this thing yourself, it inspired great jealousy in me. So I thought this is, this is what's next. And uh, I think I mentioned it before. I was working on something with the artist, Philip Newcomb. I think I mentioned him last time we spoke. Um, that is back from the printer. And we are choosing a release date for what we are calling an artifact or a sculpture which comes in the form of a tabloid newspaper that um, Philip made. Nice. Um, so that's the Silent Academy stuff. There's a lot of stuff um, coming up in the next couple of months, two or three months. 
Um, but for me, um, I'm going to be making some stuff. I'm trying to not be too dismissive of the way I'm, I'm, I'm working on something which I will be writing about, but the writing is not the point. There'll be a book at the end of it, but the book is to capture the process of something that I'm working on. I'm not being purposefully enigmatic or vague. I'm, it's, it's, it's deciding what it is as I'm working on it. So we'll see. But um, I do have the opportunity to share some work in a seed warehouse, which I'm really intrigued by. So I'm going to see if I can do that. A seed warehouse? Seed warehouse, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> Thank you for Actually, having me. Do you, uh, do you want to tell people where they can get all this stuff of yours? Yeah. on In the States, uh, it will be available... There's a, a couple of bricks and mortar stores will have it, but um, there's uh, a great online uh, and in bricks and mortar place called The Concern You Stand, which is based in um, North Carolina. And they will take care of some distribution over in the States. Um, but I mean, if people don't want to go through there, the Silent Academy website will have uh may the third is the publication day so from then the day before be, star wars day the day be, well may the third is just a really it's the third see and um i did think of other dates but the the the, the third day the you know the three is pleasing it's a three letter month that's true and it's the third of a three-letter month, and none of these things mean anything. But there's a simplicity to seeing May three. And you like it? Doesn't yeah. Matter. So there's a poetry in the. I mean, May. It's a beautiful word. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that. <laughs> May the third. They'll be all, all online, and um, yeah. Always a pleasure to talk to Mr. Shaw. We haven't caught up in a while, so that was cool. Oh, man, I'm just realizing now he's putting out a book called Coordinates, and we didn't talk about wires, map reference, 41 degrees north, 93 degrees west, which I have always considered to be one of the finest pop songs ever written. But check out his book, Coordinates, coming out next week. I very much enjoyed reading it. And if you're looking for something else to read, my Nick Cave's bar is still getting a lot of love. There's a list of bookshops that are carrying it on my website, augstone.com. It's available at all the online places. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to share it or subscribe, that would be much appreciated. A review would be awesome. And check out the Southpaw stuff at youngsouthpaw.com. I'm really tickled pink with the latest episode, Fugazi Hills 90210. Thanks for listening, y'all. Until next time. (laughs) 